Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, having an accurate and fuller understanding of Bible prophecy gives the Christian hope and encourages a closer walk with God. We are just one generation away from the world being without a voice for an accurate view of Bible prophecy. Why is that? Because the church, the vast majority of churches today, are not teaching Bible prophecy. Rick and I were taught Bible prophecy and how to study Bible prophecy. I was given this phrase when I was younger. Since you will be making decisions today that will affect tomorrow, you must know today what will happen tomorrow. Everyone has a worldview, how we see and understand the events in our world today. Therefore, we must have a proper biblical worldview to understand why our world is acting as it is today. Well, Rick, on the program today, we've got a lot to cover. We have our broadcast partners, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Israel Madad, Paul Scharf, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and of course, you and I will be taking a look at the book at the end of the program. We're going to be talking about world leaders, world events, what's taking place, how it pertains to Bible prophecy. We've got to get started. Let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have our good friend, Ken Timmerman, with us. He is our expert when it comes to geopolitical affairs. He is an author, an analyst. You can find out more about him, about the books that he has written. Even sign up for his newsletter by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, let's pick up on a story that we talked about last week. We talked about President Biden. There was a report that came out uh, about his handling of classified documents and a press conference he did. Both of these things did not show the president in a good light as far as being active and really fit to serve as president. That story continues this week as Vice President Harris says that she is ready to be president should the need arise. Well, this is a big deal. And that special counsel report, Robert Hurd, that's not going away soon, Rick. In fact, it's just going to get worse every time President Biden appears uh, with the media or on television. He is less and less there. He's non-compassmentous is really the term for it. And Kamala Harris said this week, I am ready to serve. And just to rub it in, AOC said, well, she'd better be ready to serve. Now, what that says to me, Rick, is that all of these analyses that we've heard for years, that the Democrats hate Kamala Harris, that she could never get elected, uh, that Michelle Obama is going to be brought into the convention or some other dark horse candidate, I think they have been throwing sand in our eyes. They've been trying to mislead us from the obvious. The obvious is that the vice president takes over when the president is removed from office through the 25th Amendment. And I think we are getting closer and closer to that today. Well, this has certainly been a talking point across social media and even in the mainstream news. But, I mean, putting on your analysis cap, Ken, is this something that could actually happen? Could we actually see this before the elections? And what is going on here? Is this something that could take place? Well, Rick, in fact, it is the most likely scenario. Uh, I'd like to say that Kamala Harris has been staring us in the face all the time, all along, and we've been too blinded by the disinformation in the media to pay attention to it. 
We'll certainly keep that situation on watch as we go forward here. But let's move on. There's many things taking place around the world. Late this week, one of uh, Vladimir Putin's top critics died in jail. This is something we've talked about before, uh, President Putin's critics accidentally passing away. Can you tell us about this? Uh, Alexei Navalny was probably the most serious of Putin's recent critics. Uh, he had a, a tremendous sense of humor. He did an amazing hour-long video about Putin's palace on the Black Sea, just mocking uh, the Russian president, something that he does not take very kindly towards. So he threw Navalny in prison. He was in this notorious jail in Siberia. And apparently, we don't know how he died, but he collapsed and died is what we're told. Look, this is something that has happened, I hate to say it, all along in those Russian prisons. If you are an opponent of Putin, your lifespan will be very short. So I can't say I'm surprised. It is, of course, a tragic ending for Navalny and his family. It's a tragic ending also for Russian democracy, such as it is. Uh, Putin is the czar, and he intends to remain that way. It is very interesting. We saw that Tucker Carlson interview last week, and Vladimir Putin seemed very much in charge. And this situation with maybe potentially Putin feeling the need to eliminate one of his rivals, it's kind of questions. Is he completely in charge or is he holding on by his fingernails? Oh, no, I think Putin is completely in charge. And, you know, you, you mentioned not just the Tucker Carlson interview, but Putin also spoke with the Russian media this week, and he made an astonishing revelation uh, where he said he actually preferred Biden to win the election in 2024 over Trump. And he preferred him because Biden was the more seasoned of the two and was entirely predictable in his reactions, whereas Trump might be unpredictable. You know, Rick, this comes on the heels of revelations by Michael Schellenberger, one of the people who revealed the, the Twitter files of documents from 2016 saying almost the same thing. Uh, CIA documents that have been hidden by the CIA since then may have been taken to Mar-a-Lago by the former president, may also have motivated the FBI to, to that raid on Mar-a-Lago. But those CIA documents showed that Putin at that time favored Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So the whole notion of election interference by Russia to support Trump is a complete fiction. In addition to those documents, there's a, another binder uh, that the president, President Trump, declassified on his last day in office, which showed that then CIA director John Brennan had essentially gone to the Five Eyes intelligence uh, agencies. These are America's allies overseas, uh, Britain, New Zealand, Australia, et cetera, Canada, and given them a list of 26 Trump advisors they were supposed to bump. That's kind of intelligence jargon for either to compromise or just more generally to spy on. And that was in March of 2016, many, many months before the official story says the FBI investigation of Trump and his allies began. So murky things are coming out from the U.S. intelligence community over this past week. And I expect, Rick, we're going to hear a lot more about this from President Trump himself. I'm sure we will. Well, one more story coming out of Russia this week that I'd love to get you to comment on, Ken, is that they are saying that Russia is developing space-based nuclear weapons. Can you tell us about that? 
Well, this was revealed by the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, uh, after he had been in Ukraine the week before meeting with Zelensky. Turner is belongs to what I call the party of war in Washington. He is a diehard supporter of Ukraine and in that he is out of step with the majority of his Republican colleagues in the House. They have been desperate, the party of war, to get this Ukraine funding bill passed. They did get it through the Senate this past week, and they're trying to get it brought up in the House. The House leader, Johnson, does not want to bring it up because the majority of his conference is against it. So Turner leaked this information. I put leaked in air quotes because it now has become apparent that he coordinated this leak with the White House that Russia had a new existential nuclear capability to use against the United States. And he was he was requesting an urgent briefing to all House members by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Well, this really created a firestorm. Then it appeared that Turner was actually working together with the White House. And then the White House revealed, well, no, it's not a nuclear weapon in space. It's some kind of anti-satellite weapon that the Russians have been developing for many years, but they haven't yet deployed it. So the manipulation of intelligence here, Rick, is going on fast and furious, not just by the Russians, but here in the United States as well. Which is why it's very important that we have somebody like you, Ken, to help walk us through these stories because there are so many different competing narratives and you have to be able to discern the truth from these stories. Well, one final question, and I know this is probably something that is somewhat dear to your heart. You spend quite a bit of time in Europe. You have homes in France and family or your wife's family in Sweden. There's stories coming out of the European Union and out of Europe in general about a new factor that is going to be heavily involved in upcoming elections, and it has to do with farmers. Can you tell us about this a little bit? Oh, yes, Rick. The farmers in Europe are in an uproar, and they've been in uproar for months now. Uh, it's one of the reasons that you've had these elections in Holland bring the right-wing Freedom Party to power. Now, Ursula uh, von der Leyen, who is currently the president of the European Commission, she's had to dial back new legislation that would limit pesticides use by 2030. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because without pesticides, the farmers' crops, will their yield will go down by half. And they understand that very well. You have had farmers in their tractors blocking highways, blocking cities, blocking the European Parliament. It's been an extraordinary thing. And it's not just from one country. It's from five, six different countries all at the same time. The European Union has adopted this far left agenda uh, that uh, believes that they have to shut down farming because of the methane that it produces, because of the damage to the ozone layer, because it creates global warming. All of these myths that they have been propagating for so many years. The farmers are real down-to-earth people. I know a little bit about it, being a gentleman farmer myself in France and my wife being the, a farmer's daughter from Sweden. Uh, farmers are very down-to-earth people. Uh, they know that if you don't farm and farm well and efficiently, people don't eat. The EU and the left-wing environmental extremists don't seem to understand that. does seem to be a basic principle, and it's something we're going to have to continue to follow as it affects the European Union elections that are coming up. Well, Ken Timmerman, as always, we appreciate you again, as I say, helping us navigate all of these complicated subjects. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. 
Great job as always, Ken. Great job, Rick. You know, listening to all these events that we just covered would make me very nervous about the times in which we're living. But as Paul said, he doesn't want us to be ignorant or misinformed. There is a plan for the future, and it's God's plan. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Protests have spiked all around Haiti as people are calling for Prime Minister Ariel Henry's resignation, and not for the first time. But Henry says Haiti's national security needs to be brought higher before general elections can take place. Rosalind DeHart with For Haiti With Love says their clinic has remained open, and they give out what food they can. One egg costs 50 cents, but not everybody is able to get that 50 cents. With the riots happening this week, the food prices went up even higher. They might eat one time a day or two times a week. I mean, it's whatever they can afford. When people ask why they're giving them help for free, for Haiti tells them that Jesus paid the price for them already. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. And approximately 1,300 languages still lack God's word, but that number is shrinking at a faster rate with every passing year. John Chestnut, president and CEO of Wycliffe USA, recently visited a church translating scripture in Madagascar. They drafted four full Bibles in four years, and then they said, hey, we want to get the quality better. Can you come help us? They'll dedicate four completed New Testament translations this summer. The translations are part of Vision 2025, a goal Wycliffe set to begin translating Scripture into every remaining language by the year 2025. Praise God that churches like the one in Madagascar are stepping up to the challenge and pray that the remaining languages without Scripture will start translation by next year. An answered prayer is that God is raising up His church around the world within these contexts and pray that the remaining languages without Scripture will start translation by next year. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. We're going to continue to do that right now with our friend, journalist Dave Dolan. He's a journalist with over 30 years of experience in Israel, and he joins us today for our Middle East News Update, where we talk about news going on in the Middle East in general, but Israel in particular. Dave, thank you for being with us today. I'm blessed to be with you, Rick. Dave, going on over four months since this attack that took place on October 7th and the f- resulting war, can you give us an update on what is taking place in Israel right now? Heavy action in the north this week, Rick, and more fighting, heavy fighting at times in Gaza, more Israeli casualties there. Uh, the Israelis uh, continue to prepare for a possible ground, full ground invasion into the city of uh, Rafa, which is right next to the Rafa border crossing into Egypt, the southernmost part of Gaza. 
They went into a hospital in nearby Khan Yunus earlier in the week, and they uh, discovered medicine bottles that had the names of some of the Israeli hostages on them, so they believed they had been held there. They announced they found a bunch of weapons in the hospital. There was heavy fighting around that. Israel continues to say it's setting up a security zone, a, a zone where uh, the refugees in the south, in Rafah in particular, maybe up to a million Palestinians, most from the north that fled down there, can be moved to. They're trying to set that up. And in the north, we had very intense fighting again this week, some of the strongest clashes of the four-month-long war between Hezbollah and Israel. Israel struck a apartment building in the town of Nabatea during the week and said it killed a senior Hezbollah commander, which was later confirmed by the group, which said that it has lost over 200 fighters so far in the conflict. And the uh, Hezbollah leadership responded in a very audacious way, Rick, they bombed the headquarters of the Northern Command, the IDF Northern Headquarters in the city of Sfat, Safed to some people, and they killed an Israeli female soldier who was there at the time and wounded others. Israel responded with massive airstrikes into South Lebanon, hitting all over the place, really, with aircraft. We continue to have rockets fired into Israel all during that time, anti-tank missiles as well. So very intense fighting. And on Friday, yesterday, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, said uh, that we can hit everywhere to a lot in South Israel. We have the capability to strike uh, with precision anywhere we want, and he said we're not afraid to do so. So uh, fighting words from them uh, and the defense minister, Gallant, saying we will not stop until we neutralize that threat in the north, and the war cabinet minister, Gantz, saying we will not stop in Gaza until we've either got all the hostages back or we eliminate Hamas, and he said that if they want the war to end now, they can release the rest of the hostages. Well, David, a lot to unpack there in that broad-ranging report. So let's kind of narrow down a few things here. You talked about the situation in Gaza. They're going into Rafah. This is the city that is on the border with Egypt. Of course, Israel has a somewhat tenuous peace relationship with Egypt since the Camp David Peace Accords, but that is uh, certainly could be improved upon. But it, this is going to put a strain on that relationship, and it's potentially going to put a strain on Israel's international standing because there are quite a few world leaders that are saying they do not want Israel to go into Rafah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yes, Rick, and primary amongst them, of course, is President Biden, who said on Friday at a press conference that he'd spoken twice during the week with Netanyahu, the Israeli leader. He said it was an hour-long conversation each time, and he said the main focus was me trying to persuade him not to go into Rafah at least until adequate uh, preparations can be made to get the civilians out of there. We didn't have a read from Netanyahu, but he's been saying publicly, of course, that they have no choice. There's four Hamas brigades still operating in the Gaza Strip, and they're all right there in Rafa in the south. They've got more tunnels underneath. They have no choice but to eliminate them, unless, of course, he said it too, all the hostages were released uh, tomorrow, then the war could end. But they're pretty determined. Biden's pretty determined to stop it. But yes, we did have press reports from Cairo 
that the government there was threatening to break the peace treaty with Israel. Of course, that's the oldest Middle East peace treaty going back to the Camp David Accords of 1979, 78-79, negotiated under Jimmy Carter, so quite a while ago. And those have held all these years, even despite wars and other, you know, problem times and the revolution in Egypt, the Islamic revolution there, and then the reversal of that and all of that, Rick. So uh, uh, it's been tenuous, but those threats have been denied officially by the government, but it's thought there is something to it. And then, uh, Rick, there was a report on Friday that the Egyptian government may allow some of the Palestinians to cross the Rafah border crossing into a sealed off area near the crossing that would be guarded by Egyptian soldiers. So the Palestinians would not be free to just move on from there to other parts of Egypt. They'd be confined to there, but they would be safe from the fighting. Now, again, the government denied that they're thinking of such a thing, but there's uh, suggestions that the United States in particular, President Biden again, putting pressure on Egypt's leaders uh, to do that. Of course, more news coming out of Gaza this week. UNRWA, the United Nations Relief Organization that works there, certainly seems to have been compromised. And Israel has shown that there were several people that worked for UNRWA that actually were involved in the October 7th atrocities. Yes, Rick Galat, the defense minister, uh, revealed the names and pictures of the 12 men that were actively involved, crossed the border, were actively involved in the attack on October 7th. But he also said that over 200, nearly 250 others were known to have supported it actively, not inside of Israel, but from inside of Gaza. And he said that 12% of the entire nearly 13,000 member organization that's there, of course, to provide uh, food and medicine and education and other aid, UN aid, mostly, of course, U.S. taxpayer money is very much involved in that to the Palestinians. And uh, he said, you know, this is an organization that is just filled with terrorists. And uh, he gave some other evidence of what went on there. So the Israelis are pretty clearly not going to allow UNRWA to return to its previous position in the Gaza Strip. Netanyahu's already made that clear that uh, other aid organizations can come in. There were talks this week with European leaders about bringing European aid to the Ashdod port, Israel's port north of the Gaza Strip, and then trucking it down to the Erez crossing point and bringing it into Gaza. That's possible. There's other things they can do without UNRWA. And it just seems like they've gone over the line. And by the way, Rick, there was also, I mentioned, a terror attack on Friday near Gaza, and uh, five Israelis were wounded in that. And just another reminder that terrorism is there. It was a Palestinian from East Jerusalem, a Muslim fundamentalist, the police said, who opened fire, a reminder that the war continues and Israel has no choice but to try to suppress, at the very least, these terror groups and their tentacles wherever they can and whenever they can. Well, one last question. As we expand our questioning outside of the Israel-Hamas war there in Gaza, you talked earlier about uh, attacks coming from Hezbollah in the north. Of course, Hamas, Hezbollah, these are all Iranian proxies. Still the possibility of an expansion of this war, maybe even the likelihood Can you talk about how you see this playing out? I know you're not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but how do you see this playing out as we go forward in the future, maybe the war expanding outside of that Gaza situation there? 
Well, Rick, I think a hint of where it's going came on Friday, yesterday, when there was a major operation in the north between two different Golani Brigade units, basically planning how to fight in Lebanon, training these young guys that weren't uh, in the military, weren't even alive, many of them, the last time Israel was in South Lebanon, uh, pulled out in 2000. They are learning how to fight in villages, how to fight in hilly uh, terrain, how to duck around trees, different things like that. So they are training for what we heard last week from Israeli officials would be an offensive to be launched against Hezbollah unless, again, they will agree to a diplomatic solution, agree to pull Hezbollah out of the southern border area as they were supposed to be out of, according to the UN resolution that ended the 2006 war. They shouldn't be there at all. To return to that, they have the power, but so far they've been saying the Lebanese government and Hezbollah leaders, no way, we're not pulling back. Uh, we're in this for the long haul. So it looks to me like we will have continued escalation and at some point uh, the full war that we all dread, but that probably has to come before the North can return to some sort of quiet. I lived there my first four years in Israel. I love it up there. It's a beautiful area, and it's just a, a shame that it's caught up once again in war. But it wasn't Israel that started it. It will be Israel that ends it. Journalist Dave Dolan reporting for us on the situation in Israel, both on the southern border there with Hamas and Gaza, and also on what is taking place in the north. As always, Dave, we appreciate your insight into the situation. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Glad to do it, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we come back, we will have Winky Madad talking to us about the situation with the settlers in Judea and Samaria. We'll also have Paul Scharf with us from Friends of Israel Ministry, and later on, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy Dion. That's all right ahead, right here on Prophecy Today Radio. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Tensions spike in southern Lebanon following deadly tit-for-tat rocket fire and bombings from Hezbollah and Israeli forces. The exchange comes after Hezbollah rejected a French ceasefire proposal on Tuesday, heightening fears of an Israel-Hezbollah war. More than 120,000 Lebanese have fled their homes near the border. Along with food kits and winterization supplies, Heart for Lebanon introduces displaced people to the love and hope of Christ. Churches are growing as newcomers seek fellowship in place of belonging. Meanwhile, Jason Wolford with Mission Christ says that a minister in Kenya received permission to take a special Bible meant for the incarcerated into a Kenyan prison. The Mission Christ team in Tanzania sent the 1,000 copies needed across the border. As they distributed the Bibles, God's Spirit fell on the inmates and they broke out into song and praising God for 24 hours straight. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ms. Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, there was a recent survey taken by LifeWave Research about Israel and Christians uh, identifying with Israel. Some believers do. Some, uh, a strong majority, support Israel's right of self-defense. That's 83%. But also the Palestinian right of self-determination, 76%. And the goal of a two-state solution, 81%. There are many questions revealed in this. And I think it's something that we need to keep our eyes on as part of the body of Christ. 
we focus on the Jewish people because we understand that God has a program and he's not finished with them yet. And it's really the most tangible thing that we can hold on to to let us know that God is God and he is who he says he is. So I feel like we still need to go back to Israel and let's hear from our good friend, Winky Madad, Rick. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We do have Winky Madad with us. He's a good friend of ours, a resident of the area that we call Judea and Samaria because that's what the Bible calls it. Former mayor of Shiloh, Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you once again for having me on. Well, Winky, the fact that you're a resident of Judea and Samaria is really the first thing I want to talk to you about. The last time we had you on the program, you talked about how the Biden administration was putting sanctions on, quote-unquote, Israeli settlers. Now, the UK and France have followed suit. Can you talk a little bit about this political move, this political phenomenon, and what it means for Israel? Well, what it means is that the United States is frustrated. How I should say more properly, the Biden administration is frustrated. I remind all our listeners that just before Obama, the former president, before Trump left office, he did not veto a UN resolution that labeled the uh, Jewish communities illegal. And so this has been a staple of the Obama-Biden thinking Uh, And uh, Anthony Blinken is very much part of that. And I hate to tell all our listeners, but politics not only can be dirty, but they can be nigh immoral. And this is what's happening when it turns out that Mr. Netanyahu has actually become stronger in his position, despite all the prophecies that he would be taken down by this latest Hamas war. And his talking about, wait a second, there's going to be no Palestinian authority in Gaza after Gaza is uh, subdued. And if so, it's going to have to be reformed. And we're not going to talk about it until it gets reformed. And that doesn't sit well, either with the ideology of Obama, Biden, Blinken, but also of the election campaign of Mr. Biden, who needs, it seems, at least in Michigan and maybe one or two other states, a lot more Arab-American votes than he thought he would need. Well, it certainly does seem like those political realities might come into play for the Biden administration, so we'll have to keep an eye on that going forward. But I'd like to talk to you. I listened to an interview you did this week, and you talked a little bit about the term, quote-unquote, Israeli settler violence. Now, I feel like this is potentially being used in what I would call a false equivalency where people are looking at the terrorist atrocities that took place on October 7th or that take place on different terrorist attacks throughout Israel on an unfortunately all too regular basis. And they say, well, yeah, they do that. But yeah, but we have Israeli settler violence. Now, can you talk a little bit about the equivalency between these two terms and maybe just what Israeli settler violence is? Is supposed to mean? Okay, let me try to put it as straight uh, and simple as possible. As you and I have discussed over the years, Israeli politics and Middle East politics are never simple and, and, and straight. There's, I would say, at the top, about three to maybe 500 generally what I would call youth who are very adamant that no Arab action that is either harmful to Jews living in Judea and Samaria or is uh, invading 
Jewish land or state land which has not been privately owned, neither by Jews or Arabs, or have done actual acts such as throwing stones. For example, let's go back to Khawara. We've discussed the town of Khawara uh, uh, several times on your program, and I think perhaps you might have even driven through it. It's, it, it. The road has now changed, but at that time, the road, the main road of several communities went right down Main Street of Khawara. And if too many stones were being thrown, sometimes these kids would take the law into their own hands, which shouldn't be done and should be condemned, and start throwing rocks back. And in one case, when two Jews were killed, they went down and they uh, threw too many rocks and even burnt about 30 to 40 cars in a parking lot. That should be taken care of the police. That does not compare to, uh, as you talked about, equivalency to Arabs, whether from Fatah, that is the PLO, or Hamas, or the Islamic Jihad, killing men, women, and children on the roads or even in their homes in Judea and Samaria. I haven't heard of the United States administration sanctioning a single Arab who is suspected of being a terrorist and is still alive. Uh, so that's where the problem comes in. In other words, they're using the sanctions not as much to punish someone who's done something wrong. Again, he hasn't even been through a court of law, but to browbeat, if I can use the term, the Netanyahu administration and saying, well, you got off cheap in Hag with the South African complaint of genocide. We're going to hit you now with settler violence and uh, lock up their bank accounts and all sorts of other things. That's the best I can do uh, within two and a half minutes. Well, we continue to keep an eye on that situation, and these terms are very meaningful, and you need to know what you're talking about when you hear these things in the news. Well, let's continue on uh, quickly. You uh, have been a citizen of Israel for quite some time. You do, like I said, live in Judea and Samaria, and you see what is going on around the world, uh, Secretary Blinking pushing still for a deal. And he says there may be a deal on the hostages, but very hard issues remain. And, and to a certain extent, it seems like they're basing any deal that comes down the line on a Palestinian state, even after all the events of October 7th, they're still kind of saying that we're going to need our state. And so if you could, could you tell us, how do you see that progressing in Israel, these talks? Are they going to get the hostages out? And is a Palestinian state really going to be on the table? Well, Rick, that's, that's what happens when you lock yourself into a policy called a two-state solution. You have nothing else. You don't have autonomy. You don't have condominium. You don't have three states. You don't have all sorts of other ideas. And then you realize that Hamas is completely rotten. The Palestinian National Authority has not really condemned Hamas that much, and in itself is still on the pay for slay support for terrorism uh, of those who have killed Jews. So from a moral point of view, and on this program, we do speak about morality, whether it's divinely ordinated or simple man logic, right? How can you support a Mr. Mahmoud Abbas, who was last elected about 17 years ago and is not democratic and needs to be reformed both financially and, and, and politically, etc.? And, and then you're stuck up in the air. So what do you do? 
a good politician blames the other politician and says, well, Netanyahu doesn't accept the two-state solution. Yeah, but the two-state solution is not applicable anymore. In fact, the disengagement from Gaza in 2005 was basically, you could say it was a sort of a two-state solution. We dropped off Gaza into Hamas. And what did they do? Rockets and tunnels and oh my. So uh, it's very frustrating here in Israel when it's obvious even to many people in our own peace camp, right, who support a two-state solution, who are stuck up a tree now. Well, as we look at the situation there in Israel, October 7th did change quite a few things. And I don't know that Hamas anticipated the resolve, and you mentioned it earlier, the resolve that Prime Minister Netanyahu and even a broad spectrum of political left and right in Israel realize that they can no longer deal with Hamas. And so they're committed to basically going in and weeding Hamas out of Gaza. Now, you've mentioned it just in your last answer there. I wanted to talk about what comes afterwards. Mainly, what is the Palestinian Authority's role going to be? There has been some talk that Mahmoud Abbas has said that he is ready to take over in Gaza right away. And I don't know that anybody wants that, but that's what he's saying. He has also called, it is said that he has called on Hamas to cut a deal, negotiate a deal, because it certainly does look like Israel is not going to uh, essentially take no for an answer or let Hamas continue on. So if you could, as we talk a little bit about what takes place after Gaza and the Palestinian Authority's role and Mahmoud Abbas, can you tell us about that a little bit? Um, there's a pre-factor that we have to figure out, and that is, as a part of the hostage deal, is Mr. Marwan uh, Barghouti going to be released? Because he uh, could take on Abbas. At the present moment, if Mr. Mahmoud Abbas lives for another two or three years, which means he'll be approaching 90, the situation will remain the same. He will not change pay for slave because that's an awful lot of people who are getting money to live on. Just like Hamas is employed by UNRWA. Why, why don't they w- don't want UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works Agency, to leave Gaza? Uh, because everybody's getting paid. And for a lot of Hamas members, several thousand, it's a nice side income. Beside, you know. So people don't realize that when, when we talk about humanitarian aid or reforming the Palestinian Authority, it all sounds as if we're talking about a polity or a state minus that is really running okay, just has to change a few things, you know, get get inflation down and you know, pick up employment and stuff like that. These things don't really exist. They're in between a terrorist group and a gang of street toughs. <laughs> They're not there. And, and Biden and Macron and Cameron are all building on them it's not going to happen. So looking at the future, we're going to have to really do a very good job with Hamas and then hold off Mr. Biden, at least until the elections of November. Hopefully that two-state solution will be not brought to the front too often. As always, Winky, we appreciate your insight and your analysis. I have one final question for you, and this is kind of more of a personal question. Because of our connection with Israel and the time that we've spent there and the people that we know, one of the questions that we get most often 
here at Prophecy Today is, how is Israel doing? How are the Israelis doing? And so, if you could, just from a personal perspective, maybe your observations, you know, October 7th was a very tough day, just to say the least. It was a very tough day for all of Israel, and then the, the war that came after, all the displacement in the north and the south. But as we are going past four months now since those attacks, how are Israelis doing? How is Israel doing? Well, to make it compact, we're still in a war mo- mode. Uh, my son, uh, this, this week, has just got out of his reserve duty after about three and a half months, I think. Almost mm. four. Not quite since the beginning of the war, but about two weeks into it, he got called up. So the economy, on the one hand, needs working hands. Uh, U.S. personally, my wife went down to a community to do some agricultural work help out with the crops. Uh, they're missing missing hands, as we say. But in terms of spirit, first of all, uh, I think we're over that first shock. And the only thing that really, in that sense, is keeping us going is every day we are discovering more and more the heroism of our soldiers, not only on, on that first couple of days, but in the fighting going on, despite the losses and the fact that the, the message that we're getting from the troops is that all that period of two years beforehand, when everybody was screaming and yelling and demonstrating and blocking roads, and we talked about it many times, right? That doesn't exist anymore. Forget it. We're united. We're united in the fighting against the enemies of Israel. And that's what has to be the positive message. And the fact that we do see God's hand in all this, in the amazing ability of our troops to do what they're doing, despite all the cries and the demonstrations and the blocking of roads from New York to London. I think Israel, in the main, overwhelmingly, the population is feeling good, is positive, and is determined to do evil and meet it and eliminate it. Well, Winky, you know that Jimmy and I are honored to count you as a friend. Our prayers have been with you specifically, but with the nation of Israel as well. We appreciate what you're doing there to keep our listeners informed. And as always, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much for your kind words. And thank you once again for having me on. Goodbye to you and all our listeners. Well, Israel Madad is our uh, go-to gentleman who helps us to understand what is going on with the settler violence and uh, the two-state solution, Mahmoud Abbas's role in Israel, and really how Israel is doing at this moment. I love to hear that testimony, their resolve to finish this fight, and uh, how folks are doing there. I hope you appreciated that. Well, uh, a conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago and, and uh, so much ha- happens each week that we focus on. And uh, Paul Scharf is back on the program today. Paul, welcome to the program again. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be back. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in your ministry. Well, Jimmy, I just returned from a, a quick trip down through Kansas and uh, Texas Um doing a a church ministry in Kansas, speaking on Saturday night and Sunday of last week, and then uh, attending a training in in Austin, Texas area on Monday and Tuesday of this week. I'm in Green Bay this weekend, and Lord willing, in just a couple of weeks, I'll be back in Texas for 
uh, a little more of an extended time in several ministries there in one of my visits that I've been making uh, on a regular basis in the month of March down there to the Houston area and also spending some time in the Dallas area this year. Yeah, and that conference is called the Schaefer Conference, right? Yeah, the Schaefer Theological Seminary Pastors Conference is coming up on uh, March 4 through 6, and that'll be at West Houston Bible Church, always a fantastic conference with great teaching. Paul, are you encouraged by the church wanting to know more about the end times? Yes, I think there are a lot of people who have that hunger and that desire. And I think we're seeing that, Jimmy. I I certainly noticed an uptick in that area in 2020 uh, with all the craziness in the world at that time. And I think we're seeing it again since October 7th uh, in a real profound way. People want to know what's going on. And the title of my article that we've been discussing, What's Ahead for Israel? And we know that what's ahead for Israel also tells us what's going to be ahead for the whole world. Mm. But uh, perhaps you've seen, like I have, Jimmy, also there seems to be, even within the church, a rise also in the opposition to our message regarding biblical prophecy. It seems like those of other views... um, have also stepped forward and uh, oftentimes oppose some of the things that we're talking about here with regard to a future for Israel and the pre-tribulational rapture and dispensational theology and things like that. Yes, and that's interesting. And uh, I know that we have some topics we want to cover today, but let's just talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, within the body of Christ, you have different views on eschatology. And of course, eschatology is the study of the end times. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, Jimmy, there are several major views of eschatology or the end times Bible prophecy Uh, And we know certainly, in addition to dispensational premillennialism, in particular, there's amillennialism and postmillennialism. And these views go back a very long way in church history, and there's reasons why they have developed as they have as we look back at history. But really the issue is, what does the text say, and, and are we taking the text literally? And are we taking the text as the authors intended? And I... And I think that if we do that, we're going to come out with dispensational premillennial theology, a pre-tribulational rapture, certainly a future for Israel. Yes, and I think for those that are longtime listeners of us, that's why we focus on the Jewish people, because God has a plan for the Jewish people in the future. And I like uh, what you said, you know, um, in your article, is that, you know, when the church is gone, because we believe that the rapture is the next thing to happen prophetically on God's timetable, when the church is gone, then what will happen on this earth will get back to God's disciplining of the Jewish people. Yeah, the purpose of the tribulation, Jimmy, is, is nothing to do with the church, because as you just said, the church will be in heaven. But on earth, where the tribulation is ongoing, God will be working in and through and for his people Israel, and he will be moving to bring them to repentance to receive the king and his kingdom. And that's ultimately the 
the purpose of this seven-year tribulation that's coming. Yes. So following the rapture, and I'm going to place your article again on our website because people love it. They love to have this information in front of them. And a lot of people, we want you to take it to teach. So following the rapture, Israel will be placed under the ministry of her sages of divinity. Explain that phrase. Well, I, I was alliterating my points in this article, Jimmy, as people will see. Some of them are pretty clear and obvious, and some will have to be interpreted until you realize what I'm talking about. And when I speak of sages of divinity, of course, uh, Jimmy, you know I'm talking about the two witnesses. And there's a great chapter about them in the book of Revelation. It's chapter 11. I'd encourage all of our listeners to go read Revelation chapter 11. It's just fascinating. And it's obvious to me that it describes two men that are very important and clear in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and those are, of course, Moses and Elijah, the very two men that Malachi names in Malachi 4, 4 and 5, as the Hebrew Bible closes. And, of course, the very same two men that uh, were seen with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, whom the disciples recognized as Moses and Elijah. Jimmy, I believe they're coming back to fulfill their ministries here during the coming tribulation. You know, when we think about this as they're preaching from the Temple Mount, as the temple is being built in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, 144,000 male virgin Jews will become followers of Jesus Christ and will be witnesses to all of the earth as they carry forth the gospel of their Messiah, Jesus. So the tribulation will officially begin with, and I like this is another one of your alliterations, by a signing with death. Explain that one. Well, Jimmy, the signing with death is the signing of a covenant that Isaiah describes as making a covenant with death. Isaiah chapter 28, uh, verse 15, the prophet Isaiah covers this issue saying, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, with hell, we are in agreement. Um, But he goes on to say in verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Of course, Jimmy, uh, those who are very familiar with Bible prophecy will know that uh, this is an early allusion, I believe, to Daniel's 70th week, the covenant that is made Mm. for that final seven-year period Daniel 9.27, it's the Antichrist, the coming Roman prince, who confirms a covenant with the people of Israel for seven years, for the final seven-year tribulation, uh, the final of the 70 weeks of Daniel, which are seven periods of seven years each, so the last seven years of 490 prophetic years. The 70th week of Daniel will be governed by this covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel. I believe that's how it will be evident exactly who the Antichrist is. His identity will be revealed as he makes that covenant with uh, the chosen nation. Yes, and uh, I like what you said in your article. In so many ways, this war, what we are experiencing and we're seeing right before our eyes today, from October 7th on, is certainly setting the stage for Israel to be 
in a state of such desperation that she will eagerly seek out any such covenant as long as it provides a realistic promise of lasting peace. And yeah. we've covered that today as we talked about Prime Minister Netanyahu, his his thoughts on, you know, establishing a two-state solution with the Palestinians, what that means now. So I, I do think we are seeing the stage is being set for Bible prophecy to unfold before us. And um, as you and I uh, talk about, we believe, we teach, none of this unfolds until the rapture of the church takes place. Well, that's right, Jimmy. The the rapture takes the church from earth to heaven, and God's focus, the nucleus of his work in the world, will again be Israel— and uh, moving in closer Jerusalem, and then moving even in closer than that, the temple, as you said, where the two witnesses will appear and will minister from there. And, uh, you know, we've been thinking about those two witnesses, and uh, I mentioned Malachi's reference to them in Malachi chapter 4, and he tells us that it's even before the day of the Lord. In Malachi 4 verse 5, he tells us that he will send God will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So I believe it will perhaps be very shortly after the rapture mm. that the two witnesses will appear uh, to shepherd the people of Israel prophetically. Even God is in, so gracious to even in their unbelief, he sends them uh, these men to begin their ministries that, as you said, will have such an incredible and profound impact uh, through the first half of the tribulation. Yeah. Wow, Paul. We've got some more to cover, and uh, unfortunately we're out of time today, but I, w I do want to have you come back to talk about satanic desolation and supernatural deliverance. Uh, uh, those phrases, again, following your alliteration and how you teach and uh, we're going to put your article back on our website again and follow along for people next time. Paul, thank you so much. Uh, we hope that uh, we encourage you to keep on your path of teaching the body of Christ about the times in which we're living to be pure and productive in the lives that they're living. Paul, thank you so much. Lord bless you. Oh, by the way, Paul, tell us how we can find some more of your information. Well, thanks, Jimmy. It's always so wonderful to be here with you. People can always connect with me at sermonaudio.com slash P-S-C-H-A-R-F. That's p Sharf. And I'd love to hear from them and uh, would just be honored for them to utilize any of our resources there. Of course, they can also go to foi.org. Thank you, Paul. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series is talking about that tyrant and the treaty from Daniel chapter 9. How appropriate for today's program. We'll be right back right after this break on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I'd like to take a moment on our program and thank the radio stations. Each radio station, each ministry that replays this program, every one that goes to either the Apple podcast or to our website or listens on the radio stations, however you get it. Thank you so much. And I know that there are some things that we should be saying about like click like and give a good review, right, Rick? 
Certainly, every single one of those things helps. If you click like, if you give us a good review, all those help us to help reach more people with this good news of uh, Bible prophecy and what we do here on Prophecy Today Radio. And Jimmy, on our website, again, we'd like to push our people towards it because there are so many good resources. One of the main resources we have is a daily devotional. You can sign up for our daily devotional. You can just go to our website and read that daily devotional, but there are so much it's chock full of good information. We have a bookstore. That's a way that you can support us. Plus, you can get study materials. And of course, we value your prayer and also your financial support. You can do that by going to our website and donating there at prophecytoday.com. Well, this week on our Legacy Series, we're going to conclude one of the installments in our study of God's plan through the ages. This has been the study of the prophetic book of Daniel, which describes the times of the Gentiles. In our last study, we had come to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, or also known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we see described the seven-year period of time known as the tribulation, which takes place in the end times. Daniel 9.27 tells us of two major components in the tribulation period known as the tyrant and the treaty. The tyrant is a satanically energized antichrist. In that seven-year period, there will also be a treaty, a treaty that supposedly brings peace. This treaty will actually bring a temporary short-lived pseudo-peace. Today, we will begin our study in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Dr. DeYoung will begin by asking a question and then giving the answer. Please go with us to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. The tyrant. Is the tyrant alive? I can go much deeper in the study of the Antichrist, but I believe he's alive. I told you, chapter 7, verse 8 says he comes out of the ten horns. He controls three and he takes charge. Chapter 17 of the book of Revelation says, One hour with the beast. And that word beast, used 42 times in Revelation, is referring to the Antichrist. And one hour with the beast, these ten horns receive their power. One hour with the beast, he comes out. Is the Antichrist alive? And I do believe there is a potential world leader out there that fits every single detail that the Antichrist will be involved in. I believe he's on the earth. But what does the Antichrist do? Look at Daniel 9, 27. And he shall confirm a covenant. I want you to know something, my dear friends. There's three covenants on our world scene today already in place. Camp David Accords, 1979, Israel and Egypt. That's on the verge of being destroyed by the Muslim Brotherhood when they come to power in Egypt. The second one, the Oslo Accords, signed September the 13th, 1993. Judy and I were in the government press office. We're both journalists in Israel. We watched on a live screen television feed from the White House, Yitzhak Rabin, Bill Clinton, and Yasser Arafat signed the Camp David Accords, excuse me, the Oslo Accords, a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians. The next year, 1994, October the 25th, Judy and I drove down to Elat. We spent the night there, came out to the Arava, where they had 10,000 people to watch. 1,000 of them were journalists. They recorded what happened. When Yitzhak Rabin, Prime Minister of Israel, King Hussein of Jordan, and Bill Clinton came together and to sign this, the peace treaty. 
between Israel and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, 26 October 1994. I was there when they signed it. All of these peace treaties, Camp David Accord, Oslo Accord, this peace treaty, on the table, not working, never been normalized, waiting for somebody to come and take this peace. I can confirm this. Oh, by the way, that's what the text says. It never says they're going to sign a peace treaty. It says, I will confirm it. Kabar is the word in Hebrew, confirm, strengthen, make stronger. Here's the peace treaty of Daniel 9.27. Ready to be confirmed. And when they confirm it, the clock starts ticking on the seven years. One more thing. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Here is the fourth of these unbelievable prophecies. Folks, I really need about an hour for this one, but we can't take it. we just got a couple of minutes. Chapter 11 is one of the most detailed prophetic passages in all of Scripture. 57 years before King Ahasuerus comes on the scene, verse 2 of Daniel 11, Daniel tells all about him. He'd be the fourth Persian king, far richer than all the rest. And he is the one that fulfilled the prophecy Daniel gave 57 years before he came on the scene. In verses 3 and 4, it talks about a mighty king who comes to power. That could be any of them, but then he dies and his kingdom is divided into four parts. We know that's Alexander the Great. 200 years before Alexander the Great comes on the scene, Daniel writes about him. When you come to chapter 11, verses 5 to 20, you're reading about Antiochus the Great. When this kingdom of Alexander the Great was divided into four parts, north, south, east, and west, the north was a powerful entity, the south was a powerful entity, east and west were nebulous entities. These kingdoms come to power. The Bible talks about it, Daniel relates it. The one in the north, the king of the north, his name Antiochus the Great, 300 years before he comes on the scene, Daniel details about him, says he's even going to marry the daughter of the king of the south, and it's right in the text. And that's what he did. 300 years before he comes on the scene, Daniel writes about him. By the way, the north, south, east, and west, that gives us direction. Who was the king of the north and where did he live? Modern-day Syria, Antiochus the Great. King of the south, where did he live? Modern-day Egypt. And so when you see king of the north, you're talking about Syria. You can see the south, king of the south, modern-day Egypt. When you come now to the 21st verse, we see a... A prophecy about Antiochus the Great. You remember what happened just before Christmas, a time called Hanukkah? That was to celebrate the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes. 360 years before he came on the scene, desecrated the temple. It talked about a group of men rising up. The Maccabees, Matthias Maccabees, Judas Maccabees, all the Maccabee brothers rise up. They throw Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple. He had desecrated it. Three years to the day after he desecrated it, they reconsecrated it, found a flask of virgin olive oil, lit the menorah, the seven-branch candelabra. Instead of being lighted for one day, which is all the fuel they had, it stayed lighted for eight days. Thus Hanukkah. Hanukkah means the Feast of Dedication. Jesus Christ celebrated Hanukkah, John chapter 10. It's interesting to me, in John 8, 9, and 11, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And it has effect with the menorah there in the temple. He's absolute perfect. When he gets to verse 36, he's talking about the Antichrist who comes on the scene. Notice what it says here. Look at verse 40. 
uh, verses 36, 37, 38, and 39 describe the Antichrist. That's another time. Verse 40. And at the time of the end, now look up here just a moment, please. In this definition of the time of the end, it's happening after the rapture of the church, leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. During the seven-year period of time, that's what it's talking about. Now look here. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Three personalities there. King of the north, that's modern-day Syria. King of the south, that's modern-day Egypt. Him. Well, that's the Antichrist. Verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will, one of 27 names for the Antichrist. So we have the personalities. He, his, and him, Antichrist. King of the north, Syria. King of the south, Egypt. When do they push at the Antichrist? When do these two Arab nations push at the Antichrist? After he has confirmed the peace treaty. He made a commitment to Israel. I'm your Messiah. I will take care of you. Where does the Antichrist go? He leaves there and goes over to Rome, Italy. Chapter 17 of Revelation. What's he doing over there? He's building a false church. What is he here? There's happening something in the Middle East. He's got to get back there. Look at verse 41. And he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand. Even Edom, Moab, and the chief children of Ammon. You know what that is? Biblically, that's modern-day Jordan. Why doesn't the Antichrist destroy Jordan? Petra is located in Jordan. That's the special place prepared by God, Isaiah 63, to protect the Jewish people. So God doesn't allow him to touch Jordan. So he starts in Syria, wipes out Syria, comes through Jordan, doesn't touch it. Look here in verse 42. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of the gold and over silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans. I'll stop right there. You've been paying attention. I said when the Antichrist comes on the scene, at the beginning of the seven years, to start the clock ticking, he confirms a peace treaty as I'm speaking in Amman, Jordan. They're working on peace in the Middle East. And a potential leader to be Antichrist is ahead of it. But why are they concerned? Oh, Syria, Egypt, and Libya are causing problems. Are Syria, Egypt, and Libya on the radar screen? Syria. Bashar Assad already killed 8,000 of his people trying to stay in power. The Muslim Brotherhood is trying to overthrow him as they overthrew Hosni Mubarak after 32 years. Muslim Brotherhood, a radical Islamic group. They fathered Yasser Arafat and Sheikh Yassin who established Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And Mr. or Dr. Al-Sawari, who's the number one man now in Al-Qaeda. That's products of the Muslim Brotherhood. And by the way, in Libya, after shooting Muammar Gaddafi at point blank range in the head, they took charge there. You say, you think Mubarak was good? You think Bashar Assad is good? You think Colonel Gaddafi's good? No, they weren't good. But they weren't radical, ready to come against Israel. But now the element. Who are the first three? Syria, Egypt, Libya. That's the text. I didn't make that up. In the times of the Gentiles, 
near the time when the Antichrist appears and that peace treaty is confirmed, the nations are getting ready to attack Israel. That's the time in which we're living. Only one thing must happen. Before all these prophecies are fulfilled, one thing. Pow! And we're out of here to see Jesus. I did that for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to show you how quickly the rapture can happen. Number two reason I did it, to show you that some of you are going to be surprised. In fact, 93% of you tried to get a head start on the rapture. I saw you. You lifted off. Relax, we all go at the same time. This is serious, though. Daniel lays out the times of the Gentiles, gives us the Antichrist, the seven-year tribulation period, and the first three nations that attack Israel. That's all happening in our time. Look up. Our redemption draweth nigh. The book of Daniel does introduce to each of us the times of the Gentiles, which continues until the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Daniel 11, he takes us through 2,500 years of history foretold and then fulfilled. How the alignment of the nations, that would be Islamic nations, will form a coalition to attack and then try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. The prophet Daniel discloses the first three nations in this coalition to attack Israel. They are Syria, Egypt, and Libya. This is all part of the scenario of God's plan throughout the ages. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Next week, we will continue to look at God's plan through the ages as foretold in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Please join us then. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Tensions spike in southern Lebanon following deadly tit-for-tat rocket fire and bombings from Hezbollah and Israeli forces. The exchange comes after Hezbollah rejected a French ceasefire proposal on Tuesday, heightening fears of an Israel-Hezbollah war. Heart for Lebanon's Camille Melki says more than 120,000 Lebanese have fled their homes near the border. We are looking for every spot and space to host newcomers to our church, and that's something we celebrate. Of course, we don't celebrate the hurt, the brokenness of the families uh, around us, but we celebrate the opportunity to preach and share the gospel in these difficult moments. Along with food kits and winterization supplies, Heart for Lebanon introduces displaced people to the love and hope of Christ. And Mission Christ sends repurposed Bibles and Christian literature to countries around the world. Jason Wolford with Mission Cry tells us that a minister in Kenya unexpectedly received permission to take a special Bible meant for prisoners into a prison. She called Mission Cry's distributor in the neighboring country of Tanzania to see if they could fulfill the thousand copies needed, and they could. We get the Bibles to Kenya, and they take them into the prison. And as they distribute the Bibles... For 24 hours straight, without interruption, they broke out into song, praising, unity. The Spirit of God fell on this place. The warden said they could set up a church within the prison because he saw that the God of the Bible was real. Praise God for his living word.
You can pray about supporting or sponsoring the container. $11,000 sends a half a million dollars worth of free Bibles and Christian books absolutely for free. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, great program today. And, I, you know, I, I started out and I finished out when we got done with Ken Timmerman saying, you know, this would be a scary world that we live in if it wasn't uh, for the reason of having God's word. And that's one of the benefits of studying Bible prophecy. It certainly is, Jimmy. That's why we do it. We look at these situations. It gives us peace. It gives us comfort because we know that there's an overarching plan. There has been a plan since the creation of the world, and now it's coming to fruition, Jimmy. And this is something we talk about often, the importance of studying Bible prophecy. And it's something we do, and it's something we focus on on this program because the vast majority of churches today are not teaching Bible prophecy. That's right. You know, studying Bible prophecy is profitable for our lives. That's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Talks about all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's His words to us. And, you know, when you look through the Word of God, 30% of God's Word, the way that He communicates with us, is pertaining to to Bible prophecy. So, Rick, it's very profitable for our, our lives to live a peaceful life and, you know, without anxiety. There, there are times when I'm anxious about what's happening in the world, but I just need to keep my mind focused on what God gives us in his word. We can do that, Jimmy, because it's proven. And of course, you know, we love alliteration here. You said it's profitable. I'm saying it is proven because, Jimmy, there are over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible. Of those, 500 have been fulfilled, and most of those fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ, and 500 are still to be fulfilled. So we look at those 500 that were fulfilled. It gives us an assurance that those 500 that are to come will be fulfilled in 2 Peter 1, 19 says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy where you do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. You know, when you think about that, it has to be a great track record. If one of those first 500 prophecies didn't come true, we mm. could throw out the remaining 500 prophecies and we would all be very anxious about the days in which we're living. Bible prophecy is not only profitable and proven, but uh, again, sticking with the alliteration, it is practical, just as practical as discerning the daily weather. And that's what Jesus told, you know, those men that were standing around him up at Matthew chapter 16. They asked for a sign and he said, hey, you, you can discern the weather. And, you know, that's one of the things that we all do. Very first thing that we do in the morning is get up. We can determine what the weather is going to be through the day, even if we didn't have the weather channel, we could just look at the sky. But the Lord used that as a lesson to folks. He goes, look, you can discern the weather, but you can't discern the signs of the times. What we're trying to do, Rick, every time we open the word of God, every time we open this microphone, every radio station that's with us, 
is helping us to help the body of Christ to discern the times in which we're living. Jimmy, as we continue the alliteration, we look at it, it is purifying. Uh, If we look at this world that we're living in right now, knowing that Christ can return at any moment should make every moment count. And my mind goes back, Jimmy, to the many, many, many times that you and I have stood there in uh, Megiddo overlooking where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And we look and we visualize what is going to happen in the future if that's not a purifying thought, if that is not a motivating thought to help us to understand how we should live our lives, uh, you know, reaching out to as many as we can, living our lives in that purifying way to share the gospel, to let people know what Bible prophecy says is going to take place and where we need to be and where each individual needs to be personally to be ready for that moment. Yes. First John chapter three, verses two and three says, beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And every man and woman that hath this hope in him purifieth themselves, even as he is pure. Having this hope within us is what helps us to live. And we, often end up our program by saying it helps us to live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. And really, by having that information, it does help us to to, to live a pure life and productive as, as we continue along this path in the world in which we live. It is promised, Rick, there's an re- eternal reward for the students of Bible prophecy. There certainly is, Jimmy. Second Timothy 4, 8, For I am now ready to be offered, and at the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. It is promised there is an eternal reward for students of Bible. Bible prophecy. Yes, and that's what I love. You know, each and every single one of us that know Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, we're looking. And if you listen to the program today, from everyone, from Ken to Dave to even Israel Madad talking about the Jewish people, Paul Scharf talking about the signs and, and what's going to take place in the future for Israel and, and why it's all there. All of this is to help us to be prepared right now for the rapture of the church, that next event that could happen at any moment in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, it just, it, we are so close to that event taking place and realizing that each and every single one of us in the next moment could be standing before the Lord to give an account to how we lived our lives and then to be given crowns. And one of those crowns is that we love and we were looking for his appearing and we understood God's words for the times in which we're living. Rick, great message for today. Uh, May we encourage those people that listen to us on these fine radio stations. May we be prepared. May the body of Christ continue to run their race, to press for the mark for the prize of the high calling. I appreciate what you've done, Rick. Thank you so much. We look forward to being with you again next week. I'll be here, Jimmy, as we continue to look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word.
when we look at the events that we covered today, we can't help but say that the rapture of the church can't be too far away. Knowing that, how then should we live our lives? Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thank you.